Clause 2, Classification of Senators, Vacancies. Immediately after they shall be assembled in consequence of the first election, they shall be divided as equally as may be into three classes. The seats of the senators of the first class shall be vacated at the expiration of the second year, of the second class at the expiration of the fourth year, and of the third class at the expiration of the sixth year, so that one-third may be chosen every second year, and if vacancies happen by resignation or otherwise, during the recess of the legislature of any state, the executive thereof may make temporary appointments until the next meeting of the legislature, which shall then fill such vacancies. After the first group of senators was elected to the first Congress, 1789-1791, the senators were divided into three classes as nearly equal in size as possible, as required by this section. This was done in May 1789 by lot. It was also decided that each state's senators would be assigned to two different classes. Those senators grouped in the first class had their term expire after only two years, those senators in the second class had their term expire after only four years, instead of six. After this, all senators from those states have been elected to six-year terms, and as new states have joined the Union, their Senate seats have been assigned to two of the three classes, maintaining each grouping as nearly equal in size as possible. In this way, election is staggered, approximately one-third of the Senate is up for re-election every two years, but the entire body is never up for re-election in the same year, as contrasted with the House, where its entire membership is up for re-election every two years. As originally established, senators were elected by the legislature of the state they represented in the Senate. If a senator died, resigned, or was expelled, the legislature of the state would appoint a replacement to serve out the remainder of the senator's term. If the state legislature was not in session, its governor could appoint a temporary replacement to serve until the legislature could elect a permanent replacement. This was superseded by the 17th Amendment, which provided for the popular election of senators, instead of their appointment by the state legislature. In a nod to the less populous nature of the Senate, the amendment tracks the vacancy procedures for the House of Representatives in requiring that the governor call a special election to fill the vacancy, but, unlike in the House, it vests in the state legislature the authority to allow the governor to appoint a temporary replacement until the special election is held. Note, however, that under the original Constitution, the governors of the states were expressly allowed by the Constitution to make temporary appointments. The current system, under the 17th Amendment, allows governors to appoint a replacement only if their state legislature has previously decided to allow the governor to do so, otherwise, the seat must remain vacant until the special election is held to fill the seat, as in the case of a vacancy in the House. Clause 3 when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Qualifications of Senators No person shall be a senator who shall not have attained to the age of 30 years and been nine years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state for which he shall be chosen. A senator must be at least 30 years of age, must have been a citizen of the United States for at least nine years before being elected, and must reside in the state they will represent at the time of the election. 
The Supreme Court has interpreted the Qualifications Clause as an exclusive list of qualifications that cannot be supplemented by a House of Congress exercising its Section 5 authority to judge the qualifications of its own members or by a state in its exercise of its Section 4 authority to prescribe the times, places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives. Clause 4, Vice President as President of Senate. The Vice President of the United States shall be President of the Senate, but shall have no vote, unless they are equally divided. Section 3 provides that the Vice President is the President of the Senate. Accepting the duty to receive the tally of electoral votes for President, this is the only regular responsibility assigned to the office of the Vice President by the Constitution. When serving in this capacity, the Vice President may cast tie-breaking votes. Early in the nation's history, Vice Presidents frequently presided over the Senate. In modern times, the Vice President usually does so only during ceremonial occasions or when a tie in the voting is anticipated. As of August 7, 2022, there have been 294 tie-breaking votes cast by Vice Presidents. Clause 5, President Pro Tempore and Other Officers. The Senate shall choose their other officers, and also a President Pro Tempore, in the absence of the Vice President, or when he shall exercise the office of the President of the United States. Clause 5 provides for a President Pro Tempore of the Senate, who is elected to the post by the Senate, to preside over the body when the Vice President is either absent or exercising the powers and duties of the President. Although the constitutional text seems to suggest the contrary, the Senate's current practice is to elect a full-time president pro tempore at the beginning of each Congress, as opposed to making it a temporary office only existing during the vice president's absence. Historically, a member of the majority party has filled this position. The Constitution does not require that the president pro tempore be a senator, but by convention, a senator is always chosen. The same goes for the Speaker of the House, who isn't required to be a U.S. representative, but always is. Clause 6, Trial of Impeachment. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Clause 6 grants to the Senate the sole power to try impeachments and spells out the basic procedures for impeachment trials. The Supreme Court has interpreted this clause to mean that the Senate has exclusive and unreviewable authority to determine what constitutes an adequate impeachment trial. Of the 20 federal officials formally impeached, Donald Trump was impeached twice, by the House of Representatives, four resigned, so that proceedings were dismissed, eight were acquitted, Trump was acquitted twice, and eight, all judges, were convicted by the Senate. On another occasion, the Senate declined to proceed with the impeachment of Senator William Blunt in 1797, asserting that the House had no jurisdiction over members of the Senate. In any case, Blunt had already been expelled from the Senate. On May 29, 1787, Virginia Constitutional Convention Delegate Edmund Randolph introduced 15 resolutions to the convention, following a plan formulated by fellow Virginia Delegate James Madison, that included a proposal to have a national judiciary conduct impeachments of national officials and to replace the Congress of the Confederation with a bicameral legislature where members of the lower house directly elected by the public would select members of the upper house. On June 7, the convention passed a resolution moving that senators would be chosen by their respective state legislatures rather than by popular vote. On September 4, a committee of 11 formed on August 31 submitted a resolution to the convention that proposed that the Senate should have the power to try all impeachments. On September 8, 
the convention approved the Senate impeachment trial jury resolution, and also approved a resolution introduced by Virginia Delegate George Mason to expand the scope of impeachments to include other high crimes and misdemeanors instead of only treason and bribery. After the approval of the resolution, James Madison spoke in opposition to having the Senate serve as the impeachment trial jury rather than the Supreme Court and introduced a failed resolution to remove the power from the Senate, while Pennsylvania Delegate Governor Morris argued against having the court conduct impeachments because the court would be too small in number. After six states had ratified the Constitution, New York Delegate Alexander Hamilton argued in Federalist No. 65 on March 7, 1788 that because of the inherently political nature of impeachment, as the process relates primarily to injuries to the body politic caused by the misconduct of public officials in violation of their public trust, prosecuting such charges would typically divide the public into factions in defense of or in opposition to the accused, that such factions would often overlap with and reinforce existing partisan factions, and that this risks the decisions and impeachment trials not being based upon actual demonstrations of innocence or guilt but instead by the comparative strength of the factions. Thus, Hamilton concluded that a well-established court for the trial of impeachments is an object not more to be desired than difficult to be obtained in a government wholly elective. Noting that the model approved by the convention was modeled after the impeachment process in Great Britain and that the British model had been adopted by multiple state constitutions, Hamilton argued that the Senate, composed of members chosen by state legislatures rather than popularly elected by the public, was sufficiently independent to serve as an impartial trial jury of impeachments for accusations brought by the House of Representatives, composed of members directly elected by the public. By contrast, Hamilton doubted that impeachment trials conducted by the Supreme Court, composed of unelected lifetime appointees, would have the requisite legitimacy to adjudicate the indefinite and inexhaustible range of impeachable charges brought by the House of Representatives. Instead, Hamilton argued that because a court of impeachment renders verdicts on charges can never be tied down by strict rules. In the delineation of the offense by the prosecutors and that are leveled against the most distinguished characters of the community, the inherently political nature of impeachment trials necessitated a numerous court and the commitment of the trust to a small number of persons. Additionally, Hamilton argued that because conviction in an impeachment trial did not preclude further criminal prosecution, since impeachment would not require the accused to have committed an indictable offense and its punishment would be limited to removal and disqualification from holding public office, having the Supreme Court conduct impeachment trials could subject impeached officials to double jeopardy, arguing would it be proper that the persons who had disposed fame in one trial should, in another trial, for the same offense, be also the disposers of life and, fortune? Would there not be the greatest reason to apprehend, that error, in the first sentence, would be the parent of error in the second sentence? Making the same persons judges in both cases, would be deprived of the double security intended them by a double trial. There are three constitutionally mandated requirements for impeachment trials. The provision that senators must sit on oath or affirmation was designed to impress upon them the extreme seriousness of the occasion. The stipulation that the Chief Justice is to preside over presidential impeachment trials underscores the solemnity of the occasion, and aims to avoid the conflict of interest of a vice president presiding over the proceeding for the removal of the one official standing between them and the presidency. The latter consideration was regarded to be quite important in the 18th century, political parties had not yet formed when the Constitution was adopted, and with the original method of electing the president and vice president it was presumed that the two people elected to those offices would frequently be political rivals. 
The specification that a two-thirds supermajority vote of those senators present in order to convict was also thought necessary to facilitate serious deliberation and to make removal possible only through a consensus that cuts across factional divisions.